kind of fun in a way to have just finished Philemon, a one-chapter book, uh, to go to Second John, a one-chapter book, then to kind of look ahead to Third John and to Jude, one-chapter books. Makes the Bible reading plan pretty easy, huh? When you get to those ones, you're like, woo, you know, I can handle it. Bite-sized chunks, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, it's fun. It's also fun to go to a different author today, to go from so many years hearing from Paul the Apostle uh, to hearing from, you know, that Apostle who said himself, I'm the Apostle that Jesus loved. I'm the Apostle that leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. Um, I'm, a G- I'm an Apostle that regularly would write about how I have seen Jesus. My eyes have witnessed him. I'm an eyewitness, and, uh, and I'm bearing witness to the things I've seen. That's important to have eyewitness accounts. And that apostle that Jesus uh, loved certainly loved Jesus back. That apostle that Jesus loved was a trumpeteer of loving also others because of that great love. It's been said that the book of 2 John is a tiny and much neglected epistle, but it's filled with wisdom, that it's filled with insight. It addresses our heart in dealing with love. It addresses our mind in dealing with doctrine. Both love and truth are championed in this book, and despite being so short, it's striking in its comprehensiveness. Somehow, one chapter, one letter to apparently a lady uh, is very comprehensive. Covers a lot of things for us in its shortness. Has 245 words in the Greek. It's the second shortest letter. Uh, that's after Third John coming in with 219 Greek words. You love those shorties, don't you? Like your favorite memory verse is Jesus wept, you know, so you got that down, you know, and, and maybe you even work on memorizing Second John this week. One great method is, is to, uh, to read the verse out loud five times and then to try to write it down without looking, but if you have to, that's okay, and then to say that verse again, and that's a helpful way to memorize that verse, and then you move on to the next verse, and before you move on, you say both those verses together. And, and so, you know, tackle five verses a day. It's a great method that I use. And you know that probably, you know, in a couple of days, you could have a whole book of the Bible memorized. It could just be kind of a great jump start for you in scripture memorization. Most likely, and, and it's funny, as I was writing this, my notes said, you know, when was this written? And what was John going through? And what stage of John's life was he at? And and that's important to know as we have some context behind it. But it was written most likely from Ephesus between 80 and 95 AD. So uh, John the Revelator was a pastor, the pastor in Ephesus for a season. Uh, and uh, as he would write to them in Revelation, uh, he had a special heart connection to that church that he pastored there in Ephesus. Um, the, uh, the historian Eusebius suggests that 2 John and 3 John were both written after John was exiled on the island of Patmos. So it was after the book of Revelation. And so that means that really 2 John, 3 John, these are the final New Testament books to have been written by an apostle. So kind of cool to be in these books over the next little bit of time. There are some key themes that help weave this short epistle into an awesome tapestry, and as I even read them, I noticed the repetitive words as I read to you this morning, and uh, I just got a brand new Bible, and my first new Bible in like 11 years, calfskin, oh, it's nice, it's real nice, okay, it's the preaching Bible, Thompson preaching Bible, okay, and it was really hard for me today to, to make my first marks in my Bible, you know, I was like, maybe this will be the Bible I just don't mark on, like Blaine never marked, you know, and uh, I just had to do it. I'm a marker, you know, and it helps me, helps me organize my understanding. And as I marked, I noticed, I, used, I also got new pens this week, which is helpful. I'm a nerd. I like the pens and I like the highlighters, okay? 
But I just noticed here in these first three verses, a black box was put around the word truth four times in three verses. So there's kind of these black marks up here. And then I notice you might even see where you're at. Some red boxes around the word commandments. And then there's some little dashes over here and some repetitive words of doctrine. There's blue circles around the word love. And so what you see when you see repeated words is there's a point trying to get across that John wants us to champion truth. He wants us to have an understanding of the place of the commandments of God in our life. He wants us to champion love, and he wants us to hold fast to doctrine. So that's why this is such a comprehensive book. The word truth occurring five times in the first four verses. The word love occurring four times in verses one through six. The word command occurring four times in verses four through six. The word walk addresses one's entire lifestyle occurs three times in verses four through six. Walk, walk walk and the word doctrine three times in verses 9 through 10 something else that helps us get this book is that there are three commands that link this book throughout three commands number one the continue to love love each other and the command to look out for false teachers as well as the command to reject false teachers. So there's commands. Love each other. Watch out for false teachers. Reject false teachers. And then just a final thing to help us kind of get like some context in this book. Are there several contrasts that tie the epistle together? First of all, there are those who walk in truth. Look at the beginning of verse 4a versus those who deny the truth in verse 7. So there's those that walk in truth and there's those that deny the truth. I would even ask you right now, just haven't even really dove into the book yet. Am I, am I one who walks in truth or do I not really care what truth is? In fact, I just deny it. Secondly, there's the command that's from the beginning in verses 5 and 6. And then in verse 9, we see those who go beyond the command. Thirdly, there are deeds worthy of a full reward in verse 8. And then there are evil works in verse 11. Finally, some contrasts here. Those who reject the Antichrist. And then in verse 11, that was verse 10. Verse 11, this will be next week, versus those who receive the Antichrist. And boy, you'd think just right away, like, well, duh, I'm, you know, I'm not a weirdo. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I would receive the Antichrist. And yet, Paul's going to give us some pointers that would show where are we really at? Like, th that Antichrist guy, he's kind of deceptive. He kind of sucks us in to uh, obeying and believing him. So, all this to be said, the main idea of this chapter, this book, is that followers of Jesus must walk in his commands as they love the truth of his teaching. We love the truth of his teaching, and so we walk in his commands. Maybe you got your pen and you just want to kind of mark some things out. In verses 1 through 3, we see we must love the truth. Just kind of look at this. Look at this outline as you just have your Bible open. Maybe you even see it on the screen. So we must love the truth, the first three verses. In verses 1 and 2, we embrace the truth. In verse 3, we enjoy the truth. In verse, verses 4 and 6, we must live the truth. Not only do we love the truth, we live the truth. So we're concerned about what we believe. That's our creed in verse 4. But we're also concerned about how we behave. As we've studied in the Timothys, creed affects our conduct. That's in verses 5 and 6. The next outline point would be that we must look for the truth. Verses 7 through 11. We'll get into that in the weeks to come. In verses 12 and 13, we must long 
for the truth. So let's get into it. Looking at the first six verses today. And uh, it begins in a, in a great new way for us, right? We're used to Paul. So here's a little John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. So, man, we have been years and years in the Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God. You know, like, we're in, we've been in the Paul mind, but here we just have an introduction like, hey, lady, it's the old man. <laughs> That's a little different, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it it's, it's the old guy. It's the old man. You know, when you've been an apostle of Jesus, which, by the way, none of us in this room have been, okay? Uh, when you've been an apostle of the Lord Jesus, you've walked with Jesus, you've known him closely, you've survived persecution, you've been arrested by an emperor, you've been boiled alive in hot oil, you've been exiled to an island where you were given a revelation of Jesus, when you've pastored a city called Ephesus, <laughs> When you've made your mark, then you know what? You've, you've earned that right to call yourself something general like elder or it's the old guy. Similar to calling your friend and, you know, just simply saying, hey, it's me. You know, they know it's you, right? They, they know your voice. Some of us, we jump that gun a little early. Like, I just met you at church yesterday, you know, it's me. I know I have caller ID, you know, it's like I blocked you on my cell phone. Okay. But yeah, you know, familiarity, you know, we, we know who you are, John. And then we have this to the elect lady and her children. Also an interesting introduction, isn't it? Who is this chosen lady and who are her children? Option one, which honestly is kind of my, was my first understanding as I just read it. It's been a while since I've studied it or gone through any teaching on it. Option one would be, you know, this is a, an undisclosed woman. You know, we don't know who it is. There's lots of options. You could take all day trying to figure out who it might be. An undisclosed woman who has uh, respect of John and she is loved by John. And so there's a lot of commentators that would say like, yeah, it's this lady. There's this awesome godly woman who you know is is very influential in uh in an area we don't, just don't know much about her matthew henry said it is lovely and beautiful to see ladies by holy walking demonstrate their election of god as it says remember she's the elect lady she's holy she's demonstrating her election it's also lovely to see her children. And Henry says, probably this lady was a widow. She and her children then are the principal part of the family. And so this may be styled on econom an economical epistle. So, you know, perhaps like it's actually, uh, you know, a lady. And that's, there's a lot of guys that kind of think that. But another option here, just to throw at you as we're reading it, might kind of help with some interpretation. Uh, many believe it's actually a local church that is personified in this loving, um, feminine uh, way, you know, as, as the great ship is called a she, you know, like she sailed great until we hit the iceberg, you know, something along those lines, right? Then she sank, you know, very quickly, but... Uh, but perhaps this church, maybe it's a church that's being spoken to. There's some things that could point to that way. And half the commentaries and preachers that I read and listened to fall on the, it's a lady. And half fall on the, it's a local church. Okay. And so when we read the very last verse, the children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. You know, it's like, whoa, this lady has a sister who's also elect, and she's got children. I'm like, man, this is a big family, right? Um, or it's like a sister church, and there's some sweet relationship there. So kind of think of that, you know, gosh, what, what could this be as we study and read it? I don't know that I'm totally in a position where I'm like, for sure, for sure. 
leaning more so that it's a local church, but could go either way here. But we do see whatever it is that, that John is in love, in truth. And everyone who knows the truth, even this elect sister that he refers to in verse 13, they love that this lady loves the church. They take pleasure in, uh, rather, loves the truth. They take pleasure that this lady and her children or this church and the members thereof love the truth. And anyone who knows the truth and is familiar with the truth We love it when others love the truth as well. We love good research. We love good resources. We love good sources. Because there are many people with contrary opinions that would champion that their position is the truth. But when you break this argument or ideology or worldview down to its core principles... They are based upon fabrications. They are based upon conjecture. They're based upon lies. There's no historical value underneath them. And so the beautiful thing about Christianity and the faith of the Bible is that you can track it down to early, early history and eyewitnesses. And and just so beautiful to see as time goes on, more and more archaeological evidence and historical proofs bring about that the Bible is true. So it's wonderful to be able to really be grounded in truth as Christians. And therefore, we love the truth just as the lady, and we love those who love the truth uh, as those who are grounded in the truth. Now, truth can be known as an objective reality. And that's what's wonderful. Verse 1 essentially says, you know, that you've known the truth there at the end. Anyone who's known the truth loves those who also love truth. So it's it's good that we can know the truth. It's in the perfect tense that we know the truth. Perfectly know it because we've been given it in the book. The book of truth. And you know, I'm not really educated, not real smart. And so I even had to look up like, okay, you know, I've heard phrases thrown around. I've read. There's times I like major in stuff and then years might go by and then I'm like, okay, what did that mean again? After, you know, studied it so hard, I've even taught it. I got to go back and re-research. So I had to do this. And as I go back and I looked at that, you know, truth is subject or a truth that is objective or a truth that is relative. And the beautiful thing is that subjective truth or relative truth isn't really truth. Those are truths that just depending on whatever environment you're in or whatever mood you're feeling that day, that truth wavers based upon any different factor around it. But objective truth is sunk deep into the concrete of reality. It's got the bedrock and foundation of being really and genuinely and historically right. And we can know that truth. And the spirit of God who dwells in us is a spirit of truth. He will bear witness of that in us. And so, The wonderful thing about the truth that is majored in as we get into, you know, through verse 4 here. And we see these many repeated words of truth, 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 truth. There's a fifth one here that I think I missed today. Oh, verse 4. Okay. Five truths. Five truths. You guys ever play that game? Good icebreaker. Five truths and a lie. Great, you know. Oh, you know, I was an epic weightlifting champion, you know. You know, I've been to like... 10 different countries, I got a giant Adam's apple, you know, Uh, you know, whatever. And then you get to pick like, oh, I think these are the truth. I think this is Perry's card. And I think that this is his lie, you know, and Perry's like false, you know, Um, it's a great game. But here we have five truths and they're all truth. Okay. Uh, It's just all truth. So it's not a very fun game. 
to play when you think about it. But our truth can be known as objective reality. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would help you bear witness to that truth today. Truthy, truthfulness, truthiness, okay? Then truth can be embraced experientially in us. The, the phrases are used. And that it remains is language that's used here in Second John. Truth is eternal. And it has its source in God. Check out 1 John 5.20. Please go back a book. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So truth is eternal. Its source is God. And though truth isn't necessarily defined in 2 John, John uses the term more theologically and practically concerning doctrine, concerning the gospel of Jesus, and it's not so much a philosophy in this book. Check out John 1.14. So this is John's gospel, his account of what he saw and beheld when he hung out with Jesus those three years. And he said that the word became flesh, so that's God. The son became flesh, so Jesus, fully God, fully man. He dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So truth is rooted in God. It has its source in God. And when the God-man came, when Jesus came and dwelt among us, he was full of grace, and he was marked by a fullness of truth. That's why falsity and lies have no place in Jesus. They have no place in the gospel. There's no half-truths. There's no white lies. Because truth is objective and has its source in God. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, great memory verse, you know it. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I'm truth. Remember when Jesus testified before Pontius Pilate? He says, I've come to bear witness of the truth. You know, and, and Pilate's kind of like, truth, what is truth? Can anybody know truth? And, and Jesus is just like, I'm bearing witness of it. I'm living the truth. And so truth, very important in this book. We value it five times in this chapter. Daniel Aiken writes, truth and love are the twin rails on which Christianity runs. And so within these same verses, not only do we have truth boxed up, but we also have love circled, at least in my Bible. I'm sure you did it too. Love, verse 1. Love, verse 3. Love at the end of verse 5. Love at the beginning of verse 6. So truth and love are these twin rails on which the freight train of Christianity runs. Truth and love bring authenticity and balance to our Christian confession and our Christian conduct. Aiken goes on to say, yet both are endangered species, especially in a postmodern 21st century world where relativism and sentimentality reign. And so, you know, uh, this week for uh, homeschooling, still new to me, doing literature with my little girl, and uh, we're writing about, I mean, she's writing. <clears throat> it's the curriculum we use, you know, parental involvement to the extreme. Okay. She's doing great, though, straight A's. Uh, <laughs> and we're reading about the whooping crane, the whooping crane, the whooping crane, and how, you know, in 1941, it was found that the whooping crane was becoming extinct, and there were once thousands, but then something like 18 were found. 
And so they began to determine why. And so interestingly, as I'm feeding Lainey these key words to make in her outline, that, that when a whooping crane would ha- lay eggs, she would have two eggs, and when they'd hatch, the stronger sibling would peck the other sibling out of the nest. And that sibling would just, you know, just go down, right? And then the use of pesticides, you know, being introduced to the wetlands environment would, would cause just the, the, the cranes would, in a sense, be poisoned or their food would be poisoned or whatnot, you know. And so all these things began to, you know, coyotes and all of this, and they, the, the cons- conservationists were trying to protect and, and figure out, you know, and take them out and put them into, I'm learning all these key words, you know, uh, put them into uh, a protected environment and then try having sandhill cranes adopt them and this and that and and it's just interesting to have read in these three short little pink booklets, you know, what they believe led to the endangerment and near extinction of the whooping crane, right? And interestingly enough, when we look in our culture at truth and love, those two great traits, necessary traits, so evidently in our culture are on the endangered species list. I mean, genuine Christian truth that's not based upon emotions, not based upon relativism, not based upon sentiment, but based upon truth and facts. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, truth bows down to feelings in generation X, which is some of us, in generation uh, y which is now called millennials and then did you know there's another generation the i generation do you know that's like the next thing it's the group that never has grown up without devices and cell phones it's called the i gen that's the next one and so the truth in these generations uh reading marching to a different drummer it's a book on world missions it breaks apart these generations and the one that we are a part of x sorry some of you are like Baby busters, right? Baby boomers, baby busters. You're like, I love truth. Yeah, we know. Thanks for discipling us in that. We could have used it, right? Now we got to read it for our, no, I'm just teasing. But, but you know, we've got to bust out of, of these molds of emotionalism and sentimentality and really dive into uh, genuine truth. And love, on the same hand, has been put on that endangered species list in this culture of uh, love based on feelings rather than love based on truth. Love based on what you can do for me or how happy I'm made versus love that is a choice following after the command of God we're going to see in just a few verses. Our culture knows a different kind of love. It knows more the eros love that the Greeks believed in, which is an erotic love, which is a love that is, what can you do for me? Whereas the agape biblical love is the love that's just like, man, you know what? It's a sacrificial love. It's a giving love. It's a love that doesn't, isn't based upon circumstance, but it's a love that's based on, first of all, who God is, what the Spirit is doing in your heart, and what he's told you to do, and that is love, agape. Blaise Pascal was a brilliant Christian philosopher and mathematician, and he said in his own day that truth is so obscure in these times, this was 1600s, and falsehood is so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. And I've been challenged in past teachings and just loving the truth and valuing the truth. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm great at that, but I just recall, I recall it one specific preacher talking about valuing truth and how so often in our conversations we might exaggerate, we might you know, throw out that, you know, the dog was in the backyard when really the dog was in the front yard. And what's it matter? It's just parts of the yard, you know. But the difference is that those who have a value for truth 
will get it right. And if they can't get it right, they'll preface with, I don't recall if the dog was in the back or the front, but the dog was, you know, just we're, we're trying to get truth across. And it's been said that, the, uh, that all truth is God's truth. That was Christian philosopher Arthur Holmes. All truth is God's truth because God is truth. So wherever there's any bit of truth, it's like the Lord shining through. It's a bit of his common grace coming out. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. Man, about, since, since uh, today's a, a pulse day, I was just reminded of uh, probably 10, 11, 12 years ago. No, I've only been here 10 years. So see, truth. Oh. I wasn't even alive 12 years ago. Okay. Let's see what would have been. About seven years ago, something like that. I, I'm sorry, guys. You don't got to get up and leave. Okay. All right. I'm, remi- I'm reminded about seven years ago or something, we had what we called the prayer meeting from hell. You ever been to one of those? All right. I mean, from before, Ron, you were there. <laughs> you want to tell the story? Okay. Okay. You did speak up some good, some good truth in that meeting. So that was good. Um, are you guys paying attention now? All of a sudden you're like, tell me more. <laughs> Your Bible was closed, but now you're like, hmm. Okay. So the prayer meeting from hell already. I mean, it started off weird. You know, a girl showed up. I was here setting up and I didn't want to be alone with her. But, you know, I was just, so I went out, you know, outside and out. Uh, by the windows and was just like waiting for people to show up and and then a guy uh, came and brought um, like a totally sloshed drunk guy okay so hey it's okay right we want to be a place for that here that's not the problem but with the inebriation brought all kinds of carnality with it okay and so he immediately began to hit on my wife like right here in front of everybody and and uh, started telling about what he was doing in the hotel room before he came. You know, he was like, okay, you know. And uh, he began cursing, you know. And it was just like, oh, okay, but we need to get to prayer right now. We got to get to prayer. And we worshiped and we sang the song, Jehovah, Redeemer is the name of my God, compassion and mercy, lamb that was, it was great songs about the name of God. And, and then we began to just pray out the names of God. Let's just pray out, let's just call God his, his names, his titles, you know. And people would pray, you know, you are compassionate, you know, you are merciful, you're the lamb who was slain. And then the inebriated fellow would pray out, truth. Like, yeah, amen, you know, amen. And, you know, this and that and wonderful things. And then truth, again, like, yeah, yeah, truth, yeah. And then a couple more prayers and then truth. And almost every time it was a different enunciation, truth, truth. And Okay, yeah, praise God truth we love it right and then one guy prayed out waka to tonkane you know and we're like waka, waka, you know and and then the guy prayed some more and cussed in his prayer you know okay okay it's all right and then like out of nowhere like some other guy like did you call my god wonka to tonkane you know and it's like you shut up and oh don't you judge you know and oh whoa that wasn't even half of it. Like, it went on for an hour of just harsh aggression and yelling at each other. And then we took others in the back and worked through what happened here. But all that to say, uh, the dude was right on a few levels, you know. <laughs> even a broken watch, right? You're supposed to say, yeah, right, two times a day, right? Okay. Did I miss anything, Ron? There was more. Okay, okay. <laughs> ah, the prayer meeting from hell. So anyways, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. How dare you? Oh, praise God. Okay. <laughs> the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. So it's talking about the Antichrist. There's all kinds of power, signs, lying wonders, unrighteous deception. So we've already got lying, deception, deception among those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth 
Remember what we just read, the quote, unless you love the truth in this day and age, you're not going to find the truth. They've rejected a love of the truth. If they would have received it, they might be saved. And so for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion. So on their part, they rejected, did not receive truth. On God's sovereign part, he then sent them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned. So who is condemned? Those who did not believe the truth. And then they went a step further. They actually had pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 2 in our text today goes on to say, Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. And so why does John appreciate that this woman, this lady, perhaps the church, he loves her in truth and all who've known the truth love her because of the truth that abides in John and these children. What's, what's he speaking of, this abiding in us, this receiving of the truth? I think he's speaking of the Holy Spirit's role in the Christian's life. Uh, Awana's great program. Uh, Laney's in it. Um, my homeschool kid. Actually, they all are. But, you know, uh, last week's verse was from John chapter 14. And, you know, we always try to think of different strategies on how to memorize the verses, right? I think it was John 14, 26, okay? And so it goes like this. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will guide you in all truth. And bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. Okay? And Lainey was like, no, actually she got it, right? She got it. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will guide you in all truth or in all things. It's the promise of what the Holy Spirit will do in us. John 14, 17 says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So when John says in verse 2, I love you in truth, lady, and all who know the truth love you, because of the truth that abides in us. Or because of the Spirit who eternally bears witness of truth in our heart, he will be with us forever. Verse 3 goes on with the introduction, and yes, we're only in the introduction. A little bit of Pauline-ness here. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. We've got grace mentioned here. Grace. Grace speaks of godly favor towards you that's not based upon your works, but it's based upon his own goodness. He's good. He's gracious. And has nothing to do with your achievements or failures. Has nothing to do with your merits or demerits. He's just good. And he just loves. And he's just gracious. And it's a great greeting to give to one another. Grace, man. Grace. We should start that a little bit more, don't you think? Remember grace. Champion grace. It is grace, Matthew Henry said, grace indeed, that any spiritual blessing should be conferred on sinful mortals. When you know what you've done and you think about what you've done in offense to God, it is grace that any good favor would come from God towards us. Not only grace, but mercy. Well, while it's been said that grace is receiving something that we don't deserve, mercy is not receiving something that we do deserve. As sinners who have offended and rebelled and willingly shot out the lip towards a holy God 
in rebellion, we deserve the wrath of God upon us. God's wrath towards sinners burns hot, but his mercy is so bright. Mercy from God, not getting what we deserve. And peace, peace and tranquility of spirit, having serenity of conscience, because we know we've been reconciled with God. We know that the middle wall of separation that was standing before God and us, that wall has been broken down. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, right? We were all there, 1980-something, okay? But I remember it. I didn't even know what was going on, but there was a dude with a sledgehammer and some graffiti on a wall, and that's all I cared about. And that wall was coming down. And Ephesians tells us that God in Christ Jesus has broken down the middle wall of separation and has brought reconciliation between a holy God and sinful men. Peace has taken place. We are safe and we're sanctified and we're given spiritual prosperity. And what I love about verse 3 here as I was reading through it and just pulling it apart is the tense of the role that grace, mercy, and peace has with us. It says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. Anyone else notice that? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. You're going through trials, you're going through struggles, struggling with loving, which is apparently going on in this lady here, the church or whatever it is. Struggling. There's there's doctrinal conflict. A little bit of turmoil going on. Hey, you love the truth? Grace, mercy, peace, it will be with you. It will be with you. It's in the future middle indicative. And it speaks hope. And it's in the name of, it's from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the Son of the Father. And so just in that introduction, John is championing the truth of who Jesus is, the Son of God, which makes him God. He's going to do that a couple times in this epistle. He's making it known in a day and age where the cults all around are attacking the the truths of who Jesus is. That is fully God, fully man, fully Messiah, fully anointed Christ, fully died on the cross to fully atone for our sin, fully buried for three days, fully rose from the dead, and fully ever lives to pray for us. And he fully sent the helper to be with us. And he fully will return. Full Jesus, right? He wants to make sure that that the church in Ephesus knows this. And it's affirmed in the light of the cults. And we'll talk about that two or or three, one or two, three weeks from now, whatever. I'm not going to lie to you. We'll probably be established in our next church by the time we get to that bad boy. So, okay. But I also just noticed that Jesus Christ, how's it put? The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of the Father. Amen. That's part of our creed. It's part of our belief as Christians. But also, in truth and love. And I need to do a little more work on that, and maybe you will too. Do a little homework. What's, what's happening here? In truth and love. And I just wrote in my notes before I finalized them. He's the Son of the Father in union with truth and love. Like that's a true thing about who he is. Those things can be true. That he is the son of God. And it's in a truth, truthy way. And it's in a loving way. And I just wrote in my notes, this is how he is the son of the father? Question mark. This is how he's the son of the father. How is he the son of the father? Well, he's the son of the father in truth and in love. Wrapping things up. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the father. So there's this great joy. Something that causes John to cheer 
somehow I just picture John, he's the apostle that Jesus loved. He's just like leaning against Jesus. You know, he just got no boundaries, you know. It's like that dog. Like, comfortable, John, <laughs> you know. I mean, he just seemed to have just an intimate relationship. I, to me, he's, he, he's got this joy to him. He's gone a long way from being the sons of thunder, right? And he's just rejoicing. He's just full of cheer. He's full of cheer. And I want us to be that. How's he put it? Look at the end of verse 12 here. He wants to come and speak face to face to the lady that our joy may be full. I want to be full of joy. I want to be full of cheer. Man, I'm a guy that rejoices greatly when I find some of your children walking in the truth. And I just, I would just rejoice greatly in being with you. I just cheer, right? Cheerleader. Full of joy and joyness and happiness. I was in bed the other night. It was like 3 a.m. Tatum was waking us up and it was like, let's go to sleep in Jesus' name, okay? Okay. And Lindsay had, she might, tell, she might not tell you this, but she had fallen back asleep. And uh, I'm like laying there and just thinking. And Lindsay's full on asleep, and we all know how you can tell when people are asleep, right? And all of a sudden, she just starts laughing in her sleep. Wake up. Wake up. Okay. Just like it was awesome. And in her cute little Lindsay gravelly voice, you know, just like, <laughs> you know. And I was thinking about John here. I was thinking about. John, this, the rejoicing greatly, and I would just be full of joy, and I want to be someone. I was just like, what would make her, like, laugh in her sleep, like giggle? Like, what would do that? What is she dreaming about, you know? She's like a dog, like, chasing a car, you know, or something. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. Um, but I want to just, Lord, I want to be that. I want to be that all the time. I want to be a, an apostle of joy or a disciple of joy. I want to be a guy that's just rejoicing greatly and is full of joy. And it's great that he saw some of her children walking in truth. Now, this could mean a few different things, you know. You're at Wagner's IGA, you know, and, and uh, hey, I saw some of the McKinnons there, right? Saw some of the McKinnons there, and they were all, you know, behaving, you know. And it doesn't mean that only some of the McKinnons were behaving and then some weren't. But, you know, there's a couple ways to read this. Like, wow, this church, some of them are obeying the truth and then there's some that aren't, you know. Uh, and so I'm sure you're getting where I'm going with this. That either way, there's cheer and joy that, that there are children in this church, if it's members of the church or whatnot, that are loving the truth, walking in the truth, staying the course, walking the path, enduring. In the next epistle, 3 John 1, probably the next page for you. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Listen to this. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. That's probably what Lindsay was giggling about. She's just having dreams about our kids' future, and they're like walking with the Lord, and they're serving Him, they're being used by Him, they're they're loving Him, they're obeying Him, they're you know they're they're following after the Word of God, they're sharing their faith. You know that should cause us to giggle in our sleep, right? No greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. Henry says, "Happy parent." who was blessed with such a numerous religious offspring. I was a youth pastor for almost nine years in Corvallis. Let me think, almost, I guess it was almost eight years. I'm getting old, I'm losing it. And I want to value truth, so I think it was almost eight years. And, uh, you know, that's a number of classes graduating as a high school pastor year after year after year. That's almost two full rotations of high schoolers. And, and then, like, kind of at the end of that time was when social media and Facebook began to get real big. And so I'm friends on Facebook with many of these disciples, many of these kids that came through. And I would say, like, I rejoice greatly that I found some of my children walking in the truth. Some of them. Some of them are living for Jesus. Some of them are in ministry. Some of them are missionaries full time. 
Uh, some of them are married and have kids, and, and uh, man, they're, they're just, you know, they're asking for prayer on Facebook. They're just, they're keeping the path. And I, on the same level that you would rejoice greatly, I have profound sorrow that many of them, and even some of them that, I would have bet money that they would have grown to walk and follow after Jesus. And some of those, some of those best ones of the best ones are like agnostic, proclaimed atheist. Many of them, it began when they began to date non-Christians, even Muslims, and married them, and now they just have gone down that road. And so there's profound sorrow on that opposite end as well. Walking in the truth. And so now I'm kind of a youth pastor again. (laughs) You know, we got youth group on Wednesdays, middle school, high school, just encouraging the middle schoolers that, man, don't just like stake your flag in, on the coattails of being raised in a Christian home. But, man, keep the end game in sight. And even as the high schoolers were serving in just demolition at the, church, the new church, you know, and working so hard and just great things are happening in the high school ministry, I just couldn't help but think, I wonder how many of these will be walking in the truth in 15 years and how many will, you know, fall by the wayside and, and I talk to them about that we encourage them like the reality is that the the sway of the world has a strong pull so urging them and be praying for them that all of them would be walking in the truth in 15 years time can we have the Jacobson family what's your guys' band name the, the Partridge family the Jacobson family the Donnie and Marie Come on up, guys. They walk in the truth. And then the final phrase there, and that'll be the launching for next week, as we have received commandment from the Father. So the walking in the truth is a command from the Father, and that'll lead into what that command is and what it entails, and it has to do with loving one another. And that'll be next week.